Hey, what's up, folks? I'm Aaron Dodson, and you're listening to the Give Me Understanding podcast. Psalm 119, verse 34, best describes this podcast. The psalmist wrote in the long ago, Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. This is the podcast where I discuss the sacred text, and I do my best to help myself and others understand it, so that we might keep God's law, and that we might observe it with our whole hearts. This is a continuation of the study of the gospel according to Matthew. And I'll repeat something that I've done each time to help set the tone for this episode. Matthew is the gospel account written by a Jew to Jews about a Jew. Matthew is the writer. His countrymen are the readers. And Jesus Christ is the subject. His purpose is to present Jesus as the King of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. And so, when we come to Matthew chapter 5, prefaced by the fact that Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, he's teaching in their synagogues, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing, and news about him is spreading throughout all Syria, and they're bringing to him all who were ill, <clears throat> those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he's healing them. There are large crowds following him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond on the other side of the Jordan. And when Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain and when he sits down, his disciples, they come to him and he opens his mouth and he begins to teach them and we call this the Sermon on the Mount. In this episode, I want us to consider the Beatitudes first, verses 1 through 12. But before we actually read those Beatitudes, with those things in mind, these large crowds following him, I want us to try to put ourselves in that context, in that situation, in that society, in that very event. In all likelihood, as a Jew, we would have grown up going on Sabbath every week to the synagogue to hear Scripture read, no matter where we live throughout all of Judea or even in Galilee in the northern parts of Canaan. <clears throat> and we would have heard Scripture read. That would have included the prophets and Moses, the law, the writings, and Isaiah, where Isaiah, you know, more than once spoke of a suffering servant. And he spoke of things to come in, in, in future times. And let's imagine together that we're sitting there and we are hearing about Jesus of Nazareth. We're hearing his preaching and teaching. We, we're hearing about the news and the news that's spreading throughout all Syria and how people that are sick with all kinds of diseases and pains People that are demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics, people that have never walked, they're being brought to this man, and he's healing them. And let's say whether or not we've met him in person or not, and many, many, many people met him in person in the first century. But just continuing with this scenario, you and I, let's say we were there, and our thought is, Jesus of Nazareth, is he Messiah? And we're hearing what Jesus is teaching because we're living in a time where, generally speaking, 
the Jewish people were a, not every Jew, but generally speaking, the nation as a whole was a prideful nation, a nation who thought they themselves were better than other nations. They thought that they were better than some of their own people. There was a lot of self-righteousness among the Jewish people and among the religious elite, and that would no doubt affect uh, the way other Jews felt at that time. They were individuals who did not see the need, their own need, for deliverance and salvation from sin. They themselves were not uh, brokenhearted over their own sin. They were individuals, they were a nation, I should say, generally speaking, who who were not humble and contrite and gentle. They were not hungering and thirsting for righteousness as they should have been. They were not very merciful, certainly not to the Romans and to others around them. They were not single-minded. They were double-minded. They were elevating the traditions of men to the level of Scripture. They were not speaking the Word of God and making peace as they should. They were individuals who were supposed to be the light to the world and the salt of the earth, as Isaiah had said they were supposed to be, a light to the Gentiles, but they weren't. But yet there are people that are following Jesus, including yourself, and I'm again going with this scenario that you and I were there on that day. We are the exception to the rule. We, we are wanting to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah. And we are seeing the signs that he's performing. And we have the attitude of Nicodemus, John 3, 1 and 2, that surely he is from God because no one can do the things that he is doing unless God is with him, unless his mission is approved by God. No one can do these signs, Nicodemus said, that you do unless God is with him. And then we hear Jesus speak these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of a sudden, we're thinking about what God truly wants and what true blessedness, true happiness really is. Not happenstance, not circumstantial happiness, but blessedness. True blessedness is humility. And since it's not impossible for the physically poor to be arrogant, nor for the physically rich to be humble, the poor here are those who sense their own spiritual destitution. Jesus wanted the people who would follow him to be broken, to be poor, destitute in spirit. Recognize that they're doomed and that he is the only answer. And that makes me think, like later Jesus would say, you know, come to me, all who labor, 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. True blessedness is humility. And we should ask ourselves, are we, are we individuals who recognize our spiritual destitution? Are we spiritually crouching, if you will? Because we realize we have absolutely nothing without Christ. Do we see our own great need for spiritual deliverance from sin? Truly, Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. And then we hear him say these words, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You've just heard him say that blessedness is being broken, being spiritually destitute. Those people, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're wanting to know about the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, the power of God, the authority of God, the rule of God, and the nation of Israel. And you're wondering, is Messiah going to restore the nation of Israel? Are we going to take down the Romans? What's going to happen? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessedness is mourning. Jesus said some sorrow must be embraced because true happiness is impossible without it. And the grief spoken of here comes by choice. It is said in Isaiah, the prophet Messiah would come to heal the brokenhearted and comfort all who mourn, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Those words were spoken of those of Israel's remnant who would come through the nation's affliction for its sins. They would come through humbled and grieved. Jesus uses those words here of his kingdom. God desires we experience grief that results from being horrified by our own sins. You can read about that in the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Truly, happiness, blessedness is mourning over our own sins. And the guilt, the trouble, the trials, the problems that our own sins have caused. A good question would be, are we grieved by the fact that we have sinned against our God, against His Messiah, His Son, does our mourning for sin cause us to make the godly change of heart that is necessary, as Paul preached, Acts 17, 30 and 31? And then we're sitting there and we hear him say next that those who mourn will be comforted. Well, that's nice. Isn't that great? There may have been individuals sitting in that crowd who thought, you know, I just can't get relief or comfort for my sins, Jesus said, you need to mourn over your sins. You'll be comforted if you mourn over them. Blessed are the gentle is the next thing that he mentions. Verse 5, meek. Most translations say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessedness is meekness. Blessedness is meekness, for they shall inherit the earth. <coughs> In that time, there were zealots among the Jews who 
you know, the, the zealots were an organized group. They were like undercover, underground people who had daggers. They were trained with daggers, with swords, and they would assassinate. They would, they would kill and murder various Romans and sometimes attempt to kill different Roman dignitaries and rulers that would enter in and out of Jerusalem. The zealots were individuals who they thought they were carrying out the mission of God to relieve Israel of her oppression from the Romans. They were not meek. (laughs) Jesus said, blessed are the meek, the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Not the wicked people. They don't inherit the earth, but those uh, who are meek do. And we live in a time that's very violent and self-willed as well. And it seems that self-willed individuals prevail. I'm sure it seemed that way then in the first century. Now, the gentleness of Jesus didn't save save him from dying on the cross, but in the end... It's one great factor that moved his cause to endure. It propelled his purpose and his teaching to endure and to draw individuals who were heavy burdened with sin. Again, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. What is gentleness, meekness? It's a choice that leads an individual to endure mistreatment patiently, but it's not passive about evil. Consider Hebrews 1 9, Numbers 12 3, Exodus 32 19, and Romans 12 9. To the ancient Greek world, the word meekness was applied to an animal that had been tamed. And so, a good question for us to ask about being blessed if we are tamed, if we are meek, for we shall inherit the earth. A good question is are we under God's power? Do, do we see God's rule and reign and power as the most important thing in our lives? To, to be in submission to God, do we follow His written instructions? And that's the way we reflect that today from the written instructions of God's Word. How do we treat others? You know, are we meek individuals? Are we gentle? Jesus, and you can imagine if you're there then and you hear this because the people of that time that society, even if you were not one of these individuals, you, you would hear your own need in at least one or more of these Beatitudes, no doubt. Because the concepts re- are far-reaching. But in a society that, that as a whole, we're, we're very arrogant. We're not under God's power and control. They were missing the fact that, you know, the psalm, the psalmist had written long before, many years before, Psalm 37, where he mentions this verse, where he talks about the meek inheriting the earth. And, and, and he describes in that psalm, if I can get to it quick enough here, he, he, he talks, let's see if I can find this. He speaks of, let's see, verse number nine. Let's just read Psalm 37, 1 through 9. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. The idea is destroyed. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the, against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword, and have bent their bow, to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous And if you just keep on reading this, it's a contrast of the wicked man and the blessed man. Verse 22, For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. That means this, God is going to provide for the godly, and God is going to take care of the righteous. Verse 28, the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever, etc. So the wicked man watches the righteous and seeks to slay him, verse 32. Instead, the righteous are to wait on the Lord, keep his way. God will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it, verse 34. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So again, the idea here is not eschatological. It's not end times you know, when Jesus comes back or even in the psalmist day, they're going to inherit the land in the future and, you know, thousands of years later, whatever, at the end of time. And the same is true of Jesus, you know, concept here. The righteous inherit the earth because they're the ones, they're, they're, they're the opposite of the wicked man that oppresses the needy and the widow. The godly man is the one that defends the widow and the weak one and the poor one, etc., the orphans, etc. The righteous man inherits the earth because he defends righteousness and he defends innocence and God gives the land to him. That's the idea there. Jesus, all that, that idea, that general idea, that's contained in this passage. They would have known that passage from the Old Testament. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And just imagine you're hearing this about how blessedness is humility, mourning, meekness, and then you hear him speak about hunger and you know thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Or the New American Standard Bible says satisfied. That's the idea of filled. We are, to some degree, moved by hunger of the body. You know, this morning I, <coughs> this morning I had a, a biscuit from McDonald's, 
I was moved with hunger to eat that thing. But um, it seems there are a few who recognize the hunger of the Spirit and the void that sin brings. At least there are not as many as the Lord wants to recognize that hunger. We need to acknowledge that spiritual hunger and thirst needs to be filled with spiritual drink and food. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for being right with God, righteousness. That's what righteousness is. It's all about being right with God. And so people who had heard this would have thought, Jesus is saying that this blessedness, true happiness, are for those that are hungry and thirsty for being right with God. They're going to be filled. They're going to, they're going to be satisfied. And so we could ask ourselves a question. Do we hunger and thirst intensely for a right relationship with God? And since God alone can justify, do we seek to be justified on His terms? of righteousness and forgiveness? Or do we seek to use our own rationality, our own arguments? Do we seek to quote commentaries and live by what others say the Bible says instead of what the Bible actually says, instead of what the gospel actually teaches? Truly, blessedness is hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive or obtain mercy. Mercy withholds punishment and judgment and instead displays compassion to those who are helpless. Luke 10, 37. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? After he told that parable, he said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. So he not only withheld any type of judgment, but he also displayed compassion toward him. You remember what he did? He bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on his wounds. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he gave money to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come back, I'll I'll pay you back for it. You see, that's what mercy does, being merciful toward others. And mercy also would extend forgiveness to those who have offended Matthew 18, 21, and 22. If you, know, if, if you and I were sitting there and we're hearing Jesus teaching about mercy and how if we will be merciful, we ourselves will receive mercy, and I think I would be thinking, that's what I want. That's what I, and, and that's what I think many of them thought when they heard this because they're, you know, they are, many of them, 
their disciples. They've been following Jesus. Now, I'm sure a lot of the crowd, they were just curiosity seekers. But some of them are trying to follow Christ. And as such, they hear him say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so we today, we should extend mercy to others as well. And the main reason why as Christians we should extend mercy is because we're grateful for the mercy that God has shown us. Ephesians 2.4 Have we learned what mercy means and have we extended it to others? You remember Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13 about mercy? As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I want you to learn this. Go learn what this means, that God wants people to have hearts of mercy and compassion and extend it to others. When we extend it to others from the heart, we too will receive mercy from others, excuse me, and from God. And so, true happiness, blessedness, is mercy. Next, Jesus says that true blessedness is a pure heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, that would be a very strong rebuke, a stab to some degree, at the superficial and hypocritical religion of Jesus' day. Jesus says, what he's saying is, it's the inner man that God requires to be pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. The, 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 the religious leaders and many of the Jews were focused on the material things, the physical things, the physical ceremonial clean, cleansings, clean, you know, washings, I should say, I guess would be the proper word, instead of focusing on the heart first. If you get the heart right, you'll get the outside right. But it's certainly possible and very common to get the outside right, the inside's wrong. And so you read in Mark 7, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes come together to Jesus having come from Jerusalem, and they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defile, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat, do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. 
Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Jesus said, Well did Isaiah prophesy, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments, against, the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he went on to address another issue Another way that they made void the word of God through their tradition with the law of Moses. So Jesus says true blessedness, true happiness is purity of heart. Not purity of the flesh, purity of heart. The Proverbs writer had written many years before, guard your heart for out of it flow the issues of life. Now, the Pharisees, again, they were obsessed with the external religious cleanliness and had left their hearts, their own hearts, corrupt. And Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25 and 26. Matthew 23, 25 and 26, he had said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. They had a real problem. They were clean on the outside, but very dirty on the inside. And so, since Jesus is addressing attitudes, it seems best, in my judgment, to understand pure in heart as single-minded devotion. Because when you're singularly, when you're singularly devoted in your mind to God, you're going to be spiritually clean. Like Matthew 6, 22 to 24, Jesus said later in this same Sermon on the Mount, the eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And then he went on to say, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. You cannot serve God in wealth. You've got to be single-minded, fully devoted to me. If we want to see God with our whole hearts, we will seek his will and do it. As Jesus also taught in the same sermon, Matthew 7, 24, uh, 21 through 24. And if we seek to have that single-minded devotion toward Christ's purity of heart, we will see God in this life, in His Word, and in eternity. So true happiness is purity of heart. Next, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's Matthew 5, verse 9. He says that true happiness is making peace. True blessedness is making peace. Now, those that are hungry and thirsty to be right with God, they're going to be satisfied. Those that are merciful are going to be filled with mercy and receive mercy, rather. Those that are pure in heart, they're going to see God. Those that are peacemakers will be called sons of God. Notice that, children of God. Ooh, I want to be called God's child. 
The Greek word translated peace is used one other time in the New Testament, Colossians 1, verse 20, where Paul wrote that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. Through Jesus' death, he established spiritual security for his kingdom. Now he calls on people to make peace in their own life, in their own dealings with others, without compromising his word. So making peace doesn't mean, well, if somebody disagrees, I'm going to be quiet because I want peace. That's, that's not the kind of peace Jesus wants. It's not the kind of peace that's blessed by Christ, Matthew 5, 9. You might compare uh, Matthew 10, uh, verse 34 to 36, in the context of the limited commission and the meaning of discipleship. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. But yet, people who serve him are to be people of peace. Well, how do we do that? By doing the things that Jesus did to make for peace. What did he do to make for peace? Well, his sacrifice, but also his message. We can't die on the cross for people to, you know, bring peace to, you know, between them and God. That's, that was the work of Jesus. But if we live by that death, that sacrifice, we will teach his message, and his message makes for peace. We're not to be people that are quarrelsome and difficult and contentious, troublemakers, Think about peace this way in the beginning when God first spoke the world into existence. Everything was void and chaotic. It's not organized. But to organize it and to further create more things, he spoke words of truth, words of authority. You know, let there be light, etc. And there was light. If we will live by the words of the Prince of Peace and we will teach the words of the Prince of Peace from the Scriptures, we make peace. That's how people get at peace or become at peace with God. That's the way all people have peace with God. They have it by believing that Prince of Peace and obeying His words of peace, His words of truth, I should say, that make for peace, so that we're not at odds with God, but that we're at peace with Him. If we're going to unite people on the earth, it has to be with the gospel. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And finally, <clears throat> verse 10, Matthew 5.10, the last beatitude mentioned, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, imagine you're there. And you hear Jesus speaking about being a peacemaker in a time of trouble and in a time when it was very divided. And, and, and you hear him say, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
It's peculiar that Jesus' peacemakers are often the persecuted. But Jesus says, look, true happiness is suffering for Christ, suffering for me. It's unfortunate that doing good toward others, the, 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 the best good that we could do for anybody, to anybody, is to do them right by loving them and teaching them the gospel message that saves the souls of men and women. But it's unfortunate that those that do good toward others, often that stirs the world to animosity and hatred. And then we're called bigoted, we're called hateful, etc. But Jesus was very, very, very clear about following him. He said to the apostles that if they followed him, they would suffer, they would have hardships. He says, look, they're going to make you outcasts from the synagogue. There's going to come a time when everybody who kills you will do it thinking that they're offering service to God. And I think of even Saul of Tarsus. And he says, again, look, if you follow me, you're going to have these hardships. I love the end of John 16. He says, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. True happiness is suffering for Christ because Christ deserves to be served and to be obeyed to be believed and to make clear that all Christians understood that all Christians will suffer if they follow God. Paul wrote to all Christians at large saying, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Here's a question. Of what crime are we guilty As children of God, we have chosen to be righteous in an unrighteous world. But if people say all kinds of evil against us falsely for Jesus' sake, we don't need to get bummed out. We don't need to quit. We're told to rejoice and be exceedingly glad because our reward in heaven will be great. Truly, those who are persecuted for God's will will be rewarded forever and ever in heaven. And those who are persecuted for doing what's right can take comfort in the fact, as the Lord ended that statement, these Beatitudes, by saying, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we are persecuted for teaching God's word and living by the truth, we need to remember two things. We will be rewarded far better, far greater than we could ever imagine, far more than we could ever deserve. And we're in good company because all God's faithful people in the past suffered because they live right and they taught what was right. And again, those that are persecuted for what is right, they are going to be rewarded forever and ever in heaven. First Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Our future is the inheritance that we will obtain that's imperishable and undefiled and that does not fade away that's reserved in heaven for us first peter 1 4 
Jesus taught these phenomenal, revolutionary, we might say, just to emphasize how incredible, uh, how life-changing they were and they are when they are believed and practiced. Jesus, looking at a nation of people who were downtrodden, who half of them were arrogant and didn't see their own need for forgiveness, their own need for God's you know, cleansing. Half of them were not practicing meekness. They were not hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They did not practice mercy. They, they were not pure in heart. They were practicing purity of externality, yet their hearts were rotten. They were not peacemakers, so they were not truly the people of God. And they were not being persecuted for righteousness. They were, some of them were persecuting righteousness. People were beginning to persecute Jesus, that's for sure, for being righteous and his own disciples. But then there were some in that crowd on that occasion, on that mountain. <clears throat> they were spiritually destitute. They were poor and they needed to hear, yours is the kingdom of heaven. There were people there who were mourning over their spiritual destitution, their sins. They needed to hear, you'll be comforted. There were people there who were striving to practice gentleness, meekness, that they, they need to be reminded, look, Rome should not, cannot, and will not control this earth forever. The righteous will inherit the earth, the meek. And there were some in that crowd who would hear about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and that meant the world to them because to them the most important thing was, was being right with God. They need to hear, you will be satisfied. You'll be filled. There were individuals who did extend mercy to others. And so they need to hear, you'll, you'll receive mercy. There were individuals there who focused on the heart. And they need to hear, you will see God here and later. And there were people who were speaking God's truth to make for peace. They need to hear, you are the children of God because you're teaching God's word. And there were individuals who were starting to be persecuted even in what we think those early times of Christianity, those early times of Jesus' ministry. And they would experience that more and more as they went out publicly and they taught his word. They'd be persecuted. And they needed to hear, Great is your reward in heaven. All of God's faithful people have been persecuted that way. You're in good company. Be of good cheer. They need to hear that. And we need to hear all these things today too. Which person are we in the crowd? Which one? Which one are we? Let's be honest. I hope this has been helpful for you it has been for me. I want to be a person who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who's merciful, who's pure in heart, who's a peacemaker. 
and who is persecuted for doing what's right. If this episode has blessed you in any way, do me a favor. Be the algorithm. Share it online. Click share somehow, wherever you see it, Facebook, Podbean, uh, Spotify, wherever you see this, please share it. And you can interact. You can comment. You can make a comment on Podbean and probably some of the others. I know you can on Podbean. Comment. Let me know what you think about this episode, if it blessed your life. This has been the continued study of Matthew And this has just been the study for us on the Sermon on the Mount, the part about the Beatitudes. We'll pick up next time in the future and continue through Matthew. God bless, and I will catch you next time.